We're going to start this afternoon with uh, verses 17 to 24, Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Um, I think we can say that the main theme of these uh, three, uh, these uh, eight verses is revive my prostrate soul, excuse me, I better be on the right side here, deal bountifully with me, rather, so that I may live and keep your word. Deal bountifully with me so that I may live and keep your word. I think that's probably the main idea of the verses. And then it has two parts to it, again. I think we're going to see this quite often, actually, as we work our way through uh, the stanzas of the psalm, that the stanzas fall quite naturally into two halves, four verses each, and you have that here. In the first half, verses 17 to 20, you have a prayer for bountiful dealings, and in the second half, a prayer for removal of reproach and contempt that threaten the psalmist's obedience and his life. So let's begin with the idea of bountiful dealings. Um, It's clear uh, from this uh, stanza that the psalmist is talking here in the context of suffering. And I think you can see that in two places in the stanza, one perhaps not so obvious and the other very obvious. The not so obvious one is in verse 19, I am a stranger in the earth, do not hide your commandments from me. Um, that idea, the idea of that stranger, of course, is sojourner. Abraham was a stranger in the land which God had promised to give him. That is the idea behind that word. And, of course, that's a very positive thing in, one, in a couple of respects. It means that God has called us out of the world, that we don't belong to the world anymore, that we're not really citizens of the world, and it means that we are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the positive sides of it. But the negative side is that we are now, because we are not in our native country now at this time, we are in a country that is strange to us, or in which we are strangers and reckoned as strangers also by the citizens of that country. We are strangers in the earth. And I think it's that negative ideas, especially that uh, the psalmist has in mind here when he says, I am a stranger in the earth. He's not thinking so much in the positive side, on the positive side of this, but he's thinking especially about the fact that the world looks at him as a foreigner, as someone who doesn't belong. And it's because the world looks at him this way then that we read about the other side of his suffering in verses um, 22 and 23, remove from me, he says, reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me. So he's talking about then reproach and contempt. 
which he is suffering. Now we've talked about that word reproach before, and I think uh, that the main idea of that word is that um, it's criticism for uh, perceived failure. So if someone's criticizing you or reproaching you as a Christian, then this person is uh, reproaching you or criticizing you for the futility of your faith, for the absurdity of your hope, for the stupidity of your obedience to the commandments of God, saying, why do you do these kinds of things? This is ridiculous. You shouldn't be um, concerned about that sort of thing. You should be more like ourselves. So you get this, this criticism because they see you as a futile or as a, um, a stupid or as a foolish person who doesn't really understand uh, reality properly. Um, so that's the idea of reproach. And I think, by the way, there's a good example of this kind of reproach in Isaiah 36, verse 7. Isaiah 36, verse 7. This is in the context of the Assyrian attack on Judah during the days of Hezekiah. And the Assyrian king sent his servant to Hezekiah to try to persuade him, actually, to give up his defense of the city of Jerusalem. But notice in verse 7, the reproach that he speaks against Hezekiah and the people of Judah If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, that's a a total misunderstanding of what Hezekiah has done. Hezekiah has has reformed the worship, and the king of Assyria and his servant have uh, understood that, uh, that Hezekiah has done uh, harm to the worship of God, and that Uh, their God must be angry with them for doing this. But notice the reproach. You trust in him, but look what you did to him. You uh, uh, deformed or limited his worship. um, uh, They're being reproached then for that. But there's also the second word that the psalmist uses here is contempt. And that you can see this contempt, I think, expressed in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 36. So you get both the reproach and contempt here. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. So the king of Assyria says to him, I'll give you the horses, but... I don't even believe that you have enough riders that you can put on them. Uh, verse 9, How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So there he expresses the contempt. It's that sort of thing that the psalmist is talking about here when he talks about reproach and contempt. And in this, then, in this reproach and contempt and in his uh, conviction that he's a stranger in the earth, he turns to the Lord for help. And that's where we get the prayer, deal bountifully with your servant. Deal bountifully with your servant. 
I think that word deal bountifully is also a word look, worth looking at. And again, let's turn to Isaiah, this time to chapter 63, verse 7. Isaiah 63, verse 7. He says there, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. And the word bestowed is our word bountiful dealings here. According to all the bountiful dealings that the Lord has done for us. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercy, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. So uh, there's a exalting of the great goodness and loving kindness of the Lord in that word bountiful dealings. That's the first thing we should notice, the emphasis on the the goodness of the Lord to his people. But the word's also translated in the Old Testament as reward or recompense. So if you turn to Psalm 18, verse 20, the same word appears there in that verse. Psalm 18, verse 20, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Notice how he's saying, the Lord rewards according to my righteousness. He recompenses me for the cleanness of my hands. So there's a a reward or a recompense for righteousness. And of course, we're talking about the reward of grace here. And in Psalm 103, Verse 10, you have this word used on the opposite side, that is rewarding for evil or recompensing evil. Psalm 103, verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished or rewarded us according to our iniquities. So the, the psalm there has the word, the idea of rewarding, but this time according to iniquities. So you get this idea of recompense and reward in in that word. And then the word is also used in the context of recompense for suffering. Recompense for suffering. So in verse 7 of Psalm 142, actually probably if we pick it up in verse 6, we'll be better off. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Notice that. If you use the word recompense there, you see the connection with the idea of suffering. Bring my soul out of prison. And then he expresses his confidence that the Lord will recompense him for the suffering he has to endure. So um, you get this same sort of idea then in the New Testament, of course, without the Hebrew word here, but the same idea in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The glory that we will receive is a recompense for our suffering, and in fact is a recompense that goes far beyond our suffering. That's uh, the idea there. And again, you can find this in 
a number of places in the Psalms. We'll refer to just a couple of them. This idea of recompense for suffering. Psalm 13, verse 6. 13, verse 6. Remember, this is a psalm which complains of the Lord's absence from him. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And then he ends that psalm by saying, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, or he has recompensed me. And again in Psalm 116, verses 7 and 8. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. So you get this idea of the bountiful dealings, but at the same time the idea of recompense for suffering. That's the idea which is here in Psalm 119 when he says, deal bountifully with your servant. That is, recompense me for the suffering which I have to endure at the hands of these princes who sit and speak against me. So that's the idea of the bountiful dealings. Now, what are those bountiful dealings? I think we can also say he... he he describes some of those bountiful dealings, or he asks for some specific kinds of bountiful dealings, also in this stanza. So you see in verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. There it's the first thing. He wants life from the Lord. And as a result of that life, then keeping his word. Seeing so that the recompense being life, He's walking in the midst of death, but he wants life from the Lord. And because of this life, then the keeping of the Lord's word. The rec- that's part of the recompense too, by the way, the keeping of the Lord's word. That's why his desire, we've seen how strongly he desires that in the first stanza. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. He looks on this keeping of the Lord's word and it's part of the recompense that the Lord Uh, will give him that he hopes to receive from the Lord. The order there is important too. He would never say that I may keep your word and live. Wrong order, right? It's live first, then keep the word. Because the keeping of the word proceeds from life. And the life that he asks is spiritual life. He's not talking just about physical life. He's talking about walking with God, about communion with God, about knowing God, about walking in the way of life, which is the word of God. And in that keeping of the word is also, I think we may say, the expression of his thankfulness to God for his bountiful dealings. So it's the way of life, it's also the way of thankfulness for the bountiful dealings. So you see the twofold use of the law there, if you will. The law shows him the way of life, the way he must walk in order to be with God, to know God, and to walk with God. And it also is the way of thankfulness which he desires to express to God for his bountiful dealings. So that's one 
aspect of the bountiful dealings. Another one is in verse 18, open my eyes. That's a a prayer for revelation from God. Open my eyes. Revelation, the full concept, scriptural concept of revelation has two sides to it. On the one side you have the objective word of God, his word in creation and his word in the scripture, where he talks about himself, uh, shows, gives knowledge of himself, or makes knowledge of himself available, but there's no receiving of that knowledge on our part unless he opens our eyes. There has to be the internal work of the Spirit as well. So he's praying not that the Lord will give him his law objectively, he already has that, but that the Lord will open his eyes to receive, to understand, to believe that law, that I may see wondrous things from your law. And the wondrous things are wonders, the same kinds of wonders that we talked about in Exodus, when God spoke of the wonders he would perform in the land of Egypt. It's the very same word. But these are wonders from his law. The wonders of his law. And that word wonderful or wonders has in it not just the idea that these are very great and marvelous things, but it has in in it also the idea that these are things beyond our understanding. The same kind of idea as the New Testament word mystery. So if you um, look at, for example, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, you can see this idea of wonders. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Um, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious or too wonderful for you, nor is it far off. So he associates it there with the commandments, the word wonderful with the commandments. He says it's not too wonderful. Here the the psalmist talks about it is wonderful. It is too mysterious for us to understand by ourselves. And Job also uses this word, or this word is also used in the book of Job, chapter 42, verse 3. Yeah, it is Job here, I think, talking in this verse, Job 42, verse 3, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Those are the wonders then. These are things that are beyond our grasp, beyond our understanding. They're too wonderful for us to seize, to take hold of with our earthly minds. And so he says, open my eyes that I may see these wonders of your law. And remember, he's not talking just about the Ten Commandments, but he's talking about the whole law, the ceremonial law, and all its depiction of Christ as well. But he adds to this prayer, then, in verse 19, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. There's the, that petition is the opposite of the petition in verse 18, or the same petition expressed negatively. Open my eyes, do not hide. Same idea, expressed two different ways. But this time, why? Why do not hide? I am a stranger in the earth. 
And again, think in terms of the fact that he's separated from the world, he's called out of the world, but living in the world, he's uh, opposed in the world, he's hated in the world, he's persecuted in the world, and he's on a journey to his native country, and he needs those commandments, because those commandments are the path towards that native country. He needs to be walking on that path, not another path. He needs, from those commandments, training to suit him for his native country, to prepare him for his native country. He needs those commandments because it's only when he is perfect in those commandments that he will actually have his place in his native country. need holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And then he ends this section by saying, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. And you can see why, given what he has just been saying, his soul is breaking with longing. He's a stranger in the earth. He's persecuted for that. He has a path to walk. He needs to know that path. He understands that that path leads to the his native country. He wants the bountiful dealings of the Lord through the revelation of that path. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. This is no moderate desire to do a little better in obedience than he has done. This is a passionate longing for perfection. So that's the first half. Then let's look at the second half. We've already talked a little bit about it, of course, but we have in this second half um, that he begins with a statement again, a general statement about God. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. And we noticed these in the previous two stanzas as well. The first stanza, verse 4, a basic truth about God, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. A foundational truth. And again in verse in the second stanza, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. These are truths about God that he's expressing here. And here's a third one. But this one having to do with the wicked. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. That's a, a truth about God that's always the case. This is the way God deals with the proud, the wicked. The word proud is uh, interesting too. Hebrew has quite a rich vocabulary to express the idea of pride. And so it's uh, worthwhile to um, pay attention to the particular word here. In the theological word book of the Old Testament, this particular word is defined as follows. It refers to three aspects of pride. One is presumption. Because a person is proud, he presumes too much in his favor, especially in the sense of authority. For instance, the false prophet was one who presumed to speak in the name of God, assuming authority to do so without having been called. So his pride is, is that he presumes. He presumes on something that doesn't belong to him. That's one aspect of the, this word. The second aspect is rebellion or disobedience. 
Because the person is proud, he asserts his own will to the point of rebelling against the one in authority over him. So you get going along with the pride rebellion against authority. And the third carries the additional element of willful decision. If a person so asserted himself and killed his neighbor, his own life was required as punishment. So you get uh, pride or, or presumption, rebellion, and willfulness. Those are the three aspects of that word pride according to the theological word book. Presumption, rebellion, and willfulness. So these are the, those who are presumptuous, rebellious, and willful. And they are those then who in their pride stray from God's commandments and are cursed because of it, cursed by God himself because of their straying from his commandments. And these, then, he he brings in this general truth about God, because these are the things that characterize those who are persecuting him. There are people who are reproaching him and being contemptuous towards him, and they are doing this, he says, because I have kept your testimonies, removed from me, Reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. So he has kept the testimonies. This has brought upon him reproach and contempt. And he says, remove this now from me, because this reproach and contempt is wholly undeserved. They are not reproaching me for anything I have done wrong. They are reproaching me for keeping your testimonies. And then he identifies these people more specifically in verse 23. Princes also, that is leaders of men, sit, that is they take counsel together and speak against me. So these are leaders of men, people who have power to do harm to him, who are plotting against him, seeking to do harm to him, speaking against him, pouring reproach upon him, expressing their contempt of him, even mocking him for his keeping of the Lord's testimonies. And his response then to this is given in the last part of verse 23. Your servant meditates on your statutes. So he begins with keeping the testimonies. This brings on him the reproach and contempt of these princes. And his response is, your servant meditates on your statutes. He doesn't change his mind, he's saying. He keeps on going in the way that he has chosen. He continues to meditate on the statutes of the Lord. And the meditation leads him to the conclusions we have here. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. You don't rebuke me, for my righteousness. No, you rebuke those who speak against me. You rebuke those proud men who have presumed to speak against your servant. And so again, you have him concluding with delight in the law. He says in verse 20, my soul breaks with longing. And in verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. He finds in the testimonies of God the answer to his problems, the problem of reproach and contempt, and the threat to his life, and the threat to his obedience, 
that these things represent to him. And they are his counselors. The testimonies advise him, give him good counsel in this setting of suffering. So he looks to the commandments of God in suffering. Interesting response to suffering for us. That we would look to the commandments of God. That's exactly what he's doing here. Looking to the commandments in his suffering. So we see the psalmist then here as a sojourner, reproached and despised, but steadfastly holding to the way of obedience, seeking deliverance and recompense, life and perfection in the commandments. This is the way that our Lord Jesus Christ walked. The way of reproach and contempt as a stranger in the earth. The way of obedience in that reproach and contempt. Steadfast obedience. And we look to Him then as the one who fulfilled the law before us and for us. And the spotless Lamb of God who is the atonement for all our sins. The strength therefore of our life of obedience. Uh, I'd like to read to you uh, from Spurgeon by way of conclusion to this section. Um, He says here, the prayer of this verse shows that it is only through divine bounty or grace that we can live as faithful servants of God and manifest obedience to His commands. If we give God service, it must be because He gives us grace. We work for Him because He works in us. Thus we may make a chain out of the opening verses of the, th- first, of the three first octaves or stanzas of this psalm. Verse 1 blesses the holy man. Verse 9 asks how he can attain to such holiness. And verse 17 traces such holiness to its secret source. and shows us how to seek the blessing. The more a man prizes holiness and the more earnestly he strives after it, the more will he be driven towards God for help therein. For he will plainly perceive that his own strength is insufficient and that he cannot even so much as live without the bounteous bounteous assistance of the Lord his God. So that's the uh, third stanza. Let's look now at the fourth stanza. And I think we can be a little... Uh, quicker about this stanza. The fourth stanza, the theme is revive my prostrate soul because I have chosen the way of truth. Revive my prostrate soul because I have chosen the way of truth. And again, the stanza has two parts made up of four verses each. And this is indicated not only by this, uh, the thought the stream of thought here, but also by the fact that you have in this stanza a very prominent uh, rhyme pattern. There's rhyme here. As Nodder points out in his article on this psalm, um, if you take each one of the verses of this stanza as one line, we're not going to talk about first and second lines here, then the end of each line in the first half of the stanza, verses 25 to 28, rhymes with all the rest. 
And you can kind of see it in the English translation because you have that word your in each of those lines. Your word, your statutes, your precepts, and your word again. And that your is a suffix to the Hebrew that's the same and comes at the end of each one of those lines. So it's a rhyming pattern here. And the same thing happens in the second half of the stanza. A different sound here, but in the Hebrew you have the same sound at the end of each of those four lines, and you can't really repeat, uh, repeat that one or show that one anyway from the English. So the, that, the, it's again two halves to it, and notice also the emphasis on the word way in this stanza. It's in verse 26. I have declared my ways. Verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying. Verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. And verse 32. I will run the course or the way of your commandments. Five times. He uses the word way here, so very strong emphasis on that word. In the first half, then, I think we have this idea of reviving his prostrate soul. And I've put the first half of the stanza on the board here because I think that there's a little chiasm here, which you can see if you look at it here. Notice first that you have my soul and my soul here, and then here, according to your word, and again, according to your word. So you got the, these two verses correspond, 25 and 28 correspond to each other using those things. And they express very similar ideas as well. My soul clings to the dust, and my soul melts from heaviness, and then revive me, strengthen me. But then in between those two verses, you have this, uh, this other part here, verses 26 and 27, and in the center of that, you have two petitions, and these are basically the same idea again. Teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts. And on either side of those petitions, then, something about what he's doing or has done here in the past and here the future. I have declared my ways, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. So the structure is A and then a B and then a C and then a C and a B and an A again. So you got a, a little chiasm there that he has constructed for us to um, show us the intent that he has here. And again, notice that it's suffering that he's talking about. My soul, he says, clings to the dust. And when he talks about clinging to the dust, of course he's talking about, first of all, the results of the curse. 
God created Adam out of the dust of the ground, and when Adam sinned, he said, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. His soul, he says, is cleaving to the dust. He's dying. A couple of passages that, again, that talk about this. Job 7, not difficult to imagine Job using this kind of language, is it? Job 7, verse 21 Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Or Psalm 22, verse 15, the great psalm of the cross. Psalm 22, verse 15. My soul is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And, of course, also, then, this is expressive of his trouble, his great trouble. Psalm 44, another passage, verses 24 and 25. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. You get this idea, then, of his soul prostrated in the dust and and cleaving to the dust, stuck there in the dust, unable to rise. And then in the second uh, statement, in verse 28, which is very similar to this, my soul melts or dissolves from heaviness. He's grieving. The heaviness is a result of grief. He's grieving, grieving heavily for the trouble that has come on him. And his soul is melting or dissolving because of this great grief. And what's causing this, then? Well, this, this stanza doesn't talk about the specific reason for his clinging to the dust and melting from heaviness, but we may get it from the previous and the following stanzas. The reproach is what's troubling him, what's causing him to cleave to the dust. So you, we've seen it already in um, the third stanza, But look at the next stanza, verses 33 to 40. Um, You have it there in, you have mentioned there again of reproach. Verse 39, turn away my reproach which I dread, for your judgments are good. And then in the next stanza also, verse 42 so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your words. So you have these four stanzas kind of all grouped together here and all concerned with the idea of reproach. And here in this stanza, he's focusing especially on the consequence of that reproach for himself, that his soul clings to the dust and melts from heaviness. And he prays then in this situation, first of all, for Reviving, revive me according to your word. That is, give me life. Remember the word revive means give me life. According to your word, that is, according to what you've revealed in your word, according to the promises you've spoken, according to what you've said about life in your word. That's the life I'm seeking. And it's the promise of, that you have made in your word that I'm talking about here. Give me life according to your word. And then in the second 
uh, statement, verse 28, strengthen me, or almost, we might say, set me on my feet, raise me up, according to your word. So then, after taking those two parts, we look at the central part, 26 and 27, and we'll start with the, the statements at the beginning and the end here. I have declared my ways and you answered me. Now that's something uh, that we might question. What is he talking about? What ways is he talking about? What ways has he declared to the Lord? And I think the answer is, these ways, my soul clings to the dust. He has said, he has told the Lord about how he is suffering, how his soul is clinging to the dust, and how his soul is melting from heaviness. Those are the ways he has told the Lord. And he goes right on and he says, and you answered me. So he has received an answer to his prayers, not perhaps immediately the life that he asked for or the strengthening that he asked for, but at least the word of the Lord has come to him in some way to assure him, to comfort him in these things. You answered me. And it's in the context then of the answer that he makes his first petition. Teach me your statutes. Why? The way of thankfulness, right? You have answered me. Now I want to know your statutes so that I can live thankfully for your answer. And the second part then, he makes us uh, the petition, make me understand the way of your precepts. And notice what he says will be the result now. He says, here, teach me your statutes so that I may respond properly to your answer to my prayer. Now he says, make me understand your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. It's the same sort of idea again. Give me understanding of your precepts then I will be able to meditate on them. So he asks for knowledge and wisdom so that he may express his thankfulness and so that his whole mind may be occupied with the understanding of God's commandments. He wants to live as a servant of God. That's the first half of the stanza. Let's look at the second half of the stanza now, verses 29 to 32. And I think that the main idea here is, I have chosen the way of truth. Verse 30. But he begins with the negative. Remove from me the way of lying. Remove from me the way of lying. Now the problem he's talking about is, first of all, the problem of his enemies who walk in a way of lying and who cause him trouble by doing so. But I think more particularly, the problem is his own tendency to walk in ways of lying. And he recognizes this way of lying, this tendency towards falsehood in himself. And so he asks God to remove it. And this is then all part of his thankfulness in, as we've seen it in the first half of the stanza. In order that I may keep your word, remove from me the way of lying, 
Grant me your law graciously, that is, be gracious to me and write your law on my heart. Put your law within me so that I may be conformed to it. So he's he's saying, take that old way from me, the way in which I was accustomed to walk according to my birth. And because now I have chosen the way of truth, your judgments I have laid before me. I want to walk that way, and only that way, the way of truth. And in order that I may do so, I have set your judgments before me. And then in verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. And the word cling there is the same word that you find in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Now he says, I cling. I hold fast to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. See him passionately desiring again this way of truth, this way of obedience, this way of the testimonies. I cling to them. Don't put me to shame, O Lord. Don't let me fail in this endeavor to keep your testimonies. And then he makes a promise too. He says, I'm doing this now. I'm clinging to your testimonies, but I will also run the way of your commandments because you shall enlarge my heart. You will give me understanding. That's what that means. You will make space, as it were, in my narrow and constricted mind for your commandments to take root and grow and develop and bear the fruit of righteousness. You will enlarge my heart. And only then will I be able to run the course of your commandments. And so again, we see in this, the psalmist as our Lord, prostrated in the dust of death, holding fast to the way of truth, which he had chosen, continuing in that way of truth, not letting trouble and uh, reproach and contempt distract him from that way of truth, but seeking life from his Father in heaven as he walks in this way of death. And we taking hold of him, then we take hold of him and seek our life in him who is our righteousness.